Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. I want to talk to you today about the most important truth, the most important truth at all, of all. I really think this is, is the case. This is the, this is the distinguishing Christian truth. And uh, we, we, Jesus is proclaiming himself today. Uh, it's being so clearly put out there. And uh, we need to believe it ourselves and understand it. So it's, I'm, going to take you, I'm going to take you into some pretty deep waters today. And I'll try to do it in a way we can understand. But this is really important. So Holy Spirit, uh, we need ears that hear, eyes that see. We need a soft heart. Lord, I need the grace of God so that your, your word can speak and not me. Uh, Lord, we, when we're in particularly in this kind of thing, we so need to hear from you. I ask you to open your word to us all, uh, to build us and make us strong. I just remember your promise, Lord Jesus. You build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We bless you for that, Lord. You are the church builder. You are the shepherd. You are the one who teaches. You're the rabbi. You're the only good one. We come to you and ask you to feed your flock. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, Let me remind you where we are, Um, and not just John 6. We are... We have, uh, here's, here's the progression of the last couple of days. Uh, the, the, yesterday, in, that, in, our, in our account, uh, Jesus was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the northeast corner. He had a great crowd of people. He took five barley loaves and, and, and broke them, if you recall, and, and two little fish and fed uh, 5,000 5, men. It occurred to me yesterday why they only counted the men. If, if you have, when, when, when we have, uh, have been to Africa, this is where I've seen it. When we've been to Africa and we've uh, had gatherings in, in the Transcaional, we would have the men, the men would always sit in one place. Then we'd have the children in front, so you'd keep an eye on them. And then you had, you had the mamas, the, the mothers, and all behind. And then you had the Batuan, that's, that's the uh, youth, and they would sit in, in, the, in the next section. Everyone sat by groups, and I'm sure that's what happened here. You had the men, you had the, you had the children, you, had, you have you, you know, the women and the children are sitting together. You have, and that's why there were f- just of the men, there were 5,000. Just the men, there were 5,000 in this great gathering. So he feeds them all. Then uh, you recall they wanted to make him king. And actually, almost wouldn't let him, let him escape. They began to trap him there. He put his disciples in a boat, said, get out of here. They, they headed west into a, into a great windstorm. Uh, he waited, uh, watched all night. It's, we've got a clear, moonlit night. It's Passover uh, right around there. Uh, but it's a high windstorm. I told you I've been to Israel when, when there was 80 miles an hour winds going across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, last time we were there, 80 miles an hour. So you can only imagine what that does to that lake. Um, so there, the, the, the men are rowing. Jesus then walks across the lake. Uh, they thought they could trap him. <laughs> they weren't letting him out. He just walks across the lake. You know. uh, nobody thought of that. <laughs> he, he, he got in the boat. Uh, and it says the boat was immediately at the land. It, it ended up about a mile and a half south of Capernaum. Capernaum's there on the northwest uh, corner, and it is about a mile and a half south. And this great crowd was there, and, and there was healings and all. And then Jesus went into Capernaum and went into the synagogue. Uh, we have a trip going to Israel, and we will actually stand right here, right where this... In fact, I have every intention of reading this, where we stand there in this very synagogue. I say that to say this is not a myth. This is not a religious story. This is history. This happened. The synagogue's there. Everything it's describing is there. Uh, uh, And Jesus went into this synagogue. It's a large synagogue. Uh, uh, Hundreds can be in this court. We we stand in it now and, and, uh, and, and all. And then it has a large school. 
that opens right through a large door right to it. So I have, you could probably have had 500 to 1,000 people crammed into this thing. And given the popularity of Jesus right now, I am sure that were. And into that situation, he says this. Uh, looking at verse 35, just to remind you of it. He says, I am the bread of life. Uh, he begins to talk about himself as the manna that came from heaven. Do you remember this? He who, uh, who, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. I said to you, uh, I, you've seen me, but you don't believe. And then he begins to, to dialogue about this uh, because there are unbelievers present. There are, there are religious leaders that have come up from Jerusalem to uh, actually argue with him. Uh, and so he's, you can sense that dialogue in there. And then, then we pick up at verse 41. Therefore, the Jews, and that term Jews means religious leaders, not all the Jewish people. Everyone there is Jewish. Uh, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered uh, and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. And then he says this, not that anyone has seen the father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I personally believe that John wrote this gospel, his gospel, the gospel of John, between the years A.D. 65 and 70. I think John went to Ephesus to pastor the church in that city after Timothy left to assist Paul, who was awaiting execution in Rome. You remember the story. Paul founded the church in Ephesus. He then was, was there, and then he, he, he left it, and he, who was the next pastor he put in charge after he left? Timothy, right. Timothy was, his, was the pastor there, and this is a large church in a, in a, in a very significant city uh, of Ephesus, which is right there on, uh, if you're looking at Turkey, it's right on the southwest coast there of Turkey. So he, he, he left Timothy in charge. In 2 Timothy, Paul is in prison for the second time in Rome. He's facing execution. He will be executed shortly. And he writes a letter to Timothy, and he says, come to me before winter. Uh, bring a cloak. He'd been arrested off the street. He has nothing to cover him. He's now in a terrible persecutional environment. This is Nero's persecution. So he is probably uh, cold and, and, and uncovered in, that, in, a, in a terrible cell. Uh, and he says, bring the cloak that I left with you at Troas uh, and bring the parchments with you. And so Timothy does that. Timothy gets those, the cloak, gets the parchments and comes to Paul and then leaves the church in Ephesus. When Timothy comes, I believe Timothy was arrested himself as a Christian and put in jail. I think at that, that's about 65 to 66, AD, AD 65, 66. I think right in there, uh, up to 70 AD, John came in and took the church in Ephesus. I mean, he stayed in Ephesus, but I, I don't want to go into why I say to 70. That's when the temple was destroyed, and John describes a temple that's still standing. I think it's when he wrote his gospel. He's writing it in a very dangerous time. The whole, the whole uh, empire is being violently persecuted. The Christians are under great uh, suffering, and so he writes his gospel. He says, while, while in Ephesus, John wrote this gospel, even though evidence suggests that the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had already been written. And certainly he would have known they existed and been shown them if possible and may have even possessed a copy. If anyone's going to see the scriptures, it's going to be the apostle John. But in spite of the existence of those gospels, there was a growing confusion about Jesus that alarmed John. People were saying all sorts of wrong things about who he was. Some taught that he was just a man, so he should be thought of as a prophet. Uh, pardon me, no more than a great teacher or prophet. Others taught something uh, that was opposite from this. They believed he was an angel. 
Uh, in other words, he was a spirit being of some sort who merely appeared to be human, but he was not really a human. If you open the book of Hebrews, from verse 4 through the rest of the whole chapter 1, is all saying Jesus isn't an angel. What's that about? It's about this. People are, people are trying to understand Jesus. Who is he? Who is he? Let me, let me say something here. It's not, only, it's not good enough to just believe what Jesus did. It's not enough to just believe he died and rose and did miracles. You must also be correct about who Jesus is. You cannot distort the person of Jesus. You cannot say crazy things about him and, and still be saved. I mean, this is, this is salvation stuff. John 6, 40, he says, this is the will of my father that whoever believe, beholds the son, beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. Say behold and believe. Behold and believe. Yeah, did you notice the two things? The behold means to see him and know who he is. To recognize the truth about Jesus. Those who recognize who he is and then believe is the part where I, by faith, reach out and take hold of him. I trust his cross. I trust his resurrection. I know who he is. I believe these things. But I must behold the truth. Not just what he did. Who he is. Who he is. I have to believe that. And then I embrace it by faith. Who he is was being distorted. If you were the devil, what would you go after? You would go after the person of Jesus, and you would distort it every place you could. And so there's those who say, he was just a man. God can't have a son. He was just a man. Uh, he was a great teacher, a great prophet. And there was others who say, no, he, he was an angel. You, you know all of these things are still said today uh, by a lot of people. Oh, yeah, I'm, this is not old stuff. It's been going on since, <laughs> this has been going on since, the big, since Jesus was around, frankly. Uh, all of this distortion. So what I'm saying is, in the midst of the persecution, the apostles now are, are dead except for John. I'll, I'll say that in a minute. Uh, the, the churches are struggling, and you have, you have deception that's pouring in and troubling it. And John, our dear apostle, rises up and says, no more of this. No more of this. I'm going to tell you who Jesus is. Uh, People were saying all sorts of wrong things. I read that. In other words, he was a spirit being of some sort who merely appeared to be a human. But he was not really a human. That's what they were saying. And in addition to the debate about the nature of Jesus, there's always been confusion about how could God have a son? So by the late AD 60s, there was growing groups of people who believed in a very different Jesus than the one the apostles had taught. By that, by that time, most of all, or all the original 12 had died, most during Nero's persecution. I counted eight that Nero, during that persecution, took out of, of the apostles of the 12, and, it's, and some in distant lands. So there was almost no one left with the authority to correct such distortions. I think that's why John, who by then was probably in his late 50s or early 60s, you know, he was the youngest of the, of the apostles, uh, gathered his own notes of Jesus' saying and refreshed his memory of those precious years when he walked beside him. And then he sat down and he wrote an account that emphasized the things that Jesus said about himself. The other gospels had been written earlier in a different spiritual climate. So they had not focused on those sayings to the same degree. They focused on Jesus' miracles and his wonderful teachings. Though, frankly, everything a person needs to know about Jesus is in all the Gospels. All present him as both the divine Son of God and an incarnated man. Yet somehow, the statements in those Gospels were being ignored by those determined to distort the truth. So John wrote his own and opened it with an absolutely clear declaration about the divine origin and human incarnation of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing that has come into being came into being. Could you say it any more clearly? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacle, tented, camped among us. 
and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of God, Son of God. Hallelujah. Full of grace and truth. Can you say it any better than that? Nobody can say it better than that. I mean, that's just absolute brilliance. John, listen, don't you, can't you see this dear old apostle just rising up going, no more of this. No more of this. I'm telling you who Jesus is. I, would, I walked beside him. I ate beside him. I stood beside him while he died. I'm going to tell you who he said he was. Don't you say this kind of stuff about my Jesus. Above all, John was careful to report exactly what Jesus said about himself. It is this emphasis on the nature of Jesus that makes John's gospel not only different from others, but, to, but such a gift to those who want to understand the truth about Jesus. When you, have, when you bring somebody to Jesus Christ and, and they, they say, well, where do I start reading the Bible? What do you always say? John. Gospel of John. Why? You just won't get a, a, a more beautiful, clearer gospel. And it's, so, it's different, isn't it? All of them are good. All of them are good. I, I, you, you, can't, you can't preface one, but you always, and yet you want John. But is there a profounder book in the world? Is there a more profound book in the world than the Gospel of John? It's, if, it, if it's impossible to ignore the statements about Jesus' true nature in the other, in the other Gospels, which is, it is, pardon me, if it's possible, it is impossible to do so in John's, which is why this Gospel has been attacked so viciously over the centuries. It is a target for criticism because John has presented with crystal clarity the most important truth of all, the truth that offends so many, that God the Father begot a son and sent him from heaven to become a man. Did you see what I just said? That's the truth. That God the Father begot a son and sent him from heaven to become a man. Would you say that? That God the Father begot a son and sent him from heaven to become a man. This is the issue that people hate, and this is the issue that fight, they, they fight. Uh, in the 600 ADs, when, 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 uh, when Islam swept through northern, northern Africa and just, uh, just killed Christians left and right, they would write with their blood on the walls, God has no son. It, twice in the Mosque of Omar that's there on the Temple Mount, it is said, God has no son. Cursed be anyone who says, God has a son. This, this is the attack point. This is the issue. This is the issue. We, you, you have, you, and frankly here in, 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 the, in the Seattle area, the Western Washington area, this has been a huge issue. There has been a lot of teaching called oneness in, in which God is, uh, Jesus is presented as a man, uh, essentially and completely a man, upon whom the divine spirit rested during his ministry, it lifted off of him on the cross. Then in the resurrection, it came upon him. And then, and, it's, and frankly, in the end of time, it will lift off of him. And we will be in heaven with a man who will say, we will say thank you to, like we would say to Jeremiah or to Moses, but we will not worship him. That teaching had gone th deeply through the Seattle area. And it's still present in, in, in some pastors and that kind of thing. But you, but you see what we're doing with this. We're resolving a problem. We're using logic. The human mind is saying, well, how can God be three persons and one? I mean, oh, I got it. One guy and on and off and on and off. There we go. I figured it out. Honestly, that's basically it, is people figuring it out. But I'm telling you, you're going to hear Jesus say it. He's declaring, he's sitting there in a synagogue, and he says, I have seen the Father. I came from heaven. He who believes has eternal life. This is not a small matter. This is not a small matter. If you're wrong about who he is, I think it's a salvation issue. I think it's very, very important. Not just what he did, who he is. He is. Our, our God, this is the, the Christian God, if you will, the God we believe in has a son. The God we believe in has a son. You'll hear people say, uh, they mean well, they just aren't, they aren't clear on themselves what they're saying. They'll say, God died for us. If by God you mean, uh, not the divine son, if you, by God you mean the father, the father did not die for you. That is absolutely false. 
The father did not die for your sins. He sent his son. You see this? He sent his son to die for you. His divine son from heaven to become a man. And I'll explain. It matters enormously. First of all, let's go back through those verses just a moment and, and retell them. The religious leaders understood the spiritual meaning behind Jesus' statements about himself far better than the crowds or even his own disciples. So when he called himself the bread that came down out of heaven, they recognized that he was claiming to be more than an ordinary human being who begins existing at conception. He was claiming to have lived in heaven before coming to earth. He had defined the term bread of God as that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then said, I am the bread of life. The manna in the wilderness was not a natural phenomenon. It was a daily miracle which came directly from heaven. Which is why Jesus used manna to illustrate his own origin. He too was a miracle which had been sent from heaven. The leaders sitting in front of him knew what he meant. But they rejected his claim and tried to discredit it. They began speaking to one another in voices uh, that were loud enough to be heard by those nearby. If not everyone in the synagogue, they muttered, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Their goal was to counter his statements by reminding everyone that Jesus had, had human parents. Apparently, Joseph and Mary were known to many, either directly or indirectly. In effect, they were saying, nonsense, he's not from heaven. He has human parents just like the rest of us. Do you please notice those religious leaders, those were, these are, these are top, these are rabbis, they're Pharisees, these are Bible scholars. They listen to him and they go, oh, I know what you said. You said you came from heaven. No, you didn't. You've got a mother and father like I do. When, when it, next time someone says, Jesus never claimed to be God. Tell them, why don't you read the Bible for the first time? <laughs> Just have a look. This is, this is exactly what the issue is in that synagogue. This is the stir. They assumed Jesus was Joseph's natural, uh, pardon me, that Joseph was Jesus' natural father, which is false, of course. But we know from elsewhere in the Gospels that Mary conceived Jesus by a miracle while still a virgin. But Jesus did not try to correct their mistake or explain. That would have led to more confusion. Instead, he asked them to stop murmuring and said that a person's ability to accept what he was saying depended on the Father drawing that person. The word he used in that statement, which is translated as drawing, is one which is used to describe a gentle pulling. There is another word which means forceful pulling. But John did not choose to use that word to translate Jesus' statement. He chose to use a word uh, that was used to describe the slow pulling in of a net to catch fish. Jesus says, no one comes to, the, to me except the Father. And then the word that's used is like, well, if, if you go there, they use this, these, these uh, nets that you, these, you, I don't know what you call them, but you throw the net. Uh, when you go out on the Sea of Galilee, they, you get on a boat and they, there's always somebody who will do this for you. And, and he, he takes the net and he has to drape it carefully over his arm and get it just right. And then he'll stand there and he takes this thing and he, boof, and it goes out in this beautiful circle. And it's got uh, weights around the outer edge. It goes out in this circle and it lands on the thing. And then the weights on the edge of the net pull it down like this together. And you, you draw the net slowly. Any fisherman knows that when you yank, you lose the fish, right? Go out with it. Somebody goes, thank you. Somebody says, I didn't know that. Well, if you go fishing, some of you go fishing with a neophyte, you know, they always, the minute they get a bite, they go, you know, and just rip the thing out of the fish's mouth, you know. You know a fisherman knows you, you, you keep a taut line. But you have to play that fish. You have, to, you have to be gentle with the whole process. Well, so does net casting. You, if you jerk that thing, it's just, you've just lost everything. You have to sneak up on them. So you, you're, you're, you, you, you know, throw it out there, and then you slowly draw the net. That's, that's what God's doing to us. He's sneaky. <laughs> He's, he, he is kind of. He's real smart. He knows how, he knows how to get you. And, and he just pull, and he's just like, no, just pull it in. 
So he's drawing in it. Jesus says, that's how the Father draws people to himself. It's used that way. Here's the, that same word is used to describe the attractive power of God's love. Or God drawing people to himself through a prophet's uh, admonishment. Or even of God lifting David out of many waters. He used this same word when he translated this beautiful statement by Jesus. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Isn't that beautiful? If taken out of context, all that Jesus taught, of all, pardon me, of all Jesus taught, this statement about the Father drawing people can be misunderstood to mean that the Father will only allow certain people to believe in his Son. Jesus was explaining that divine assistance is needed before a person is able to comprehend what they're hearing or respond to that message appropriately. So when he puts it out there and says, I have come from heaven, he says, unless the Father is drawing your heart and you're tender to him, you're not going to understand what I'm saying. It won't, it'll seem crazy to you. But if the Father does not help does not provide that help, an individual is powerless to come to faith in Jesus. The question is, whom does he help? Thankfully, the answer is found in the next verse. Jesus said, everyone hearing from the Father and learning comes to me. In an earlier conversation when talking to Nicodemus, he described such people as those who came toward God's light when they see it. They are the ones who do not run and hide when God exposes their deeds because they know that when his light examines their deeds and motives, it will reveal what they wanted, pardon, that they wanted and earnestly tried to obey him. What, when that light reveals sin, they will gladly repent. This is not earning your salvation. The, the thing that separates people is integrity, a willingness to be honest. Some people, when, when, when God shows them their sin, they cover their eyes and go, I don't want to see that. Don't tell me that. Oh, no. And they harden their hearts. When God comes along and says, that's wrong. I want that to stop. If you're going to come to me, you have to give that up. They go, I don't want to hear that. No. And they'll pull away. That's what he describes. Other people, and here's all it takes to come to God. Other people, when God says, that's wrong, they'll look at it and go, ooh, you're right. How's that for integrity? Try it. Ooh, you're right. That's icky. There you go. That's confessing. When God the, the, he comes to the thing and the Lord says, that's got to come out of your life. You go, ooh, you're right. Help me. Now you're moving with God. So that's what Jesus is describing. Those who are willing to come are those simply who are willing to be honest as the Lord draws their hearts. Those who, I'm moving fast, huh? Uh, those whom the Father does not draw to Jesus are those who stubbornly refuse to see what he tries to show them or hear what he tries to tell them or are unwilling to understand, which means uh, they ponder the truth they've received until each one knows how God wants him or her to respond. To provide scriptural explanation for what he was saying, Jesus quoted from Isaiah and probably Jeremiah, who both say that in the Messianic age, all of God's people will gladly receive teaching from the Lord. The point Jesus is making is that since he's the Messiah, the promise was at work wherever he went. The Father was teaching all who truly belonged to him. And in particular, he was confirming them to them that Jesus is his son. Jesus is saying, if you love the Father and you've been responding tenderly to him, when, when you meet me, you'll love me because I'm just like the Father. Does that make sense? Yeah, if, if you walk into a room and go, you know, I love God, but boy, I don't like this Jesus fellow. You, you're just going, no, you don't love God because the father's just like his son. So if you love the father, you will love the son who's just like him when you meet him. When you see him doing kind things, when you see him healing, when you see him compassionate, when you see the way he deals with the broken and the sinful, you'll go, that's just like the God I've met. That's, he's got to be from God. Look at, look at that. That's, that's him. You'll recognize. That's what he's explaining. Then Jesus stated the most important truth God reveals to those who he's drawing. Jesus is not just a man teaching what limited minds can know about God. He is the divine son who came to us from heaven where he beheld the father in all his glory. This means that instead of reasoning and guessing about God or even prophesying in part as do the prophets of God, Jesus was reporting what he had actually seen. 
John stated this same truth in the opening portion of his gospel when he said, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And the word explained there means to report what you have seen or heard. Uh, I, I'd love those verses I think I give you there. If, uh, is that word report? Look them up. They're all, he came in and reported what he'd seen, reported the miracles that had been done, reported this. So when Jesus arrives from heaven, he reports to us what he has seen of the Father. The truth about Jesus' origin is an essential part of what it means to behold the Son so that we might believe in him. The preexistent divine nature of Jesus is arguably the most important Christian truth of all. Without it, we have no Savior capable of bearing the sins of the world. That's what I'm going to explain to you in a minute. The one who believes will finally be given eternal life, Jesus says. He doesn't say the believer will uh, finally be given eternal life at some point in the future. He says he or she has it from the moment of faith onward. The resurrection of our bodies, the absence of persecution, and the subordination of the devil all await the return of Christ. But our spiritual separation from God is repaired instantly. The intimacy and constancy of his presence, which will be ours in the age to come, arrives now in this present age. This is because the source of life, which has come to dwell with us. What, will we, experience, what we will experience in full then begins in part now. All right. Let's try to understand this importance of this. Logic and revelation. Something can be logical but false. Something can be illogical but true. When humans try to comprehend spiritual realities, we have to begin by understanding our own limitations. We are dealing with a subject that is far too great for us to discover by reasoning our way to it. There are too many unknowns, and our own soul isn't clean enough to accept the painful truths we don't want to see. This, this is something that we really have got to, we've really got to come to this, that your logic and mine will not lift us up and to look into heaven. You aren't, come on, think of the God we're talking about. He spoke the universe, the universe into existence. Any of you watch these, like the IMAX thing on the Hubble or any of this stuff? Have you seen any of the, the how big this universe is? You know, the, the, it just the size, the mass of it, the physics. I hate physics. I took physics three times. I shouldn't have told you that. Uh, he gets physics. That is huge. Think of the physics he, he put into place in, in this universe. And then you and I think we're going to figure him out. You don't figure him out. You listen to what he tells you. That's all we can know. I, I say this over and over again. There is no one on planet earth or ever has been who knows anything more than what's in the book. What, these, what the apostles, the Lord Jesus, the prophets of God have written to us. This is all we know. Everything else is what somebody thinks it means. It, my heart, my, 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 my whole purpose is can I cleanly as possible without getting myself in it, let this book speak to us again. Because that's, this, this is the revelation. You have to start from that. What has been revealed because the minute I start spinning my wheels and coming up with my own solutions to things, I produce heresy. So do you. Only revelation is, 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 is that which we can trust. There are too many unknowns in our own soul, and our soul isn't clean enough to accept the painful truths we don't want to see. See, when I come across something I don't like, I try to explain it away. I try, to, I, try to, I try to handle it. I'm, I'm not clean. I don't just come and go, you say that, it's true, I don't like it, but here we go. Th that takes integrity. My, I, I, I have to be integrous, and I'm not, neither are you. None of us are pure enough. We all need to just, when, it, when we come to points where we, we don't understand or don't like, just say, I believe it, I don't get it. But I believe it. When he says it, it's true. So logic is, is good, 
but very limited when it comes to spiritual truth. Even the best logic can't lift us up to the point where we can peer into heaven. For us to discover the truth about God, someone from heaven must come to us to explain it to us. This is called revelation, when God chooses to reveal a truth we couldn't know any other way. He declares it to someone who is humble and fully yielded to him, and then that person speaks it or writes it down or both. That's how we got our Bible. God revealed mysteries to people, and then they wrote them down. Because he picked those authors very carefully, what they passed on to us was completely accurate. We can trust the Bible and believe what it says. It presents to us truth that can save us. The word became flesh. But at no time in history has God revealed himself to the, to the degree that he did by sending his son to earth. Suddenly, the revelation of the spiritual world took a gigantic step forward. Someone who had actually seen God face to face came to earth and told us what he's like. And the one who came not only spoke the truth about God, he showed us the deeds and character of God, for he was exactly like him. In fact, he said he only did what he saw the father do and only said what he heard the father say. This is that, that is an enormous truth. I have to always say the heart and character of God is exactly like Jesus Christ. Even when I read stuff or don't understand stuff that doesn't look like it, I always know the heart of God is exactly like Jesus Christ. Is that true? Yeah. He, he, Thomas, why do you say, show us the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So by watching and listening to him, it was, it was as though we humans were at last able to step into heaven and behold the Father himself. This makes Jesus vastly different from every other prophet or teacher or miracle worker. And it means that when we, he says something, our job is to hear what he says and then believe it. We would never want to challenge what he taught simply because it didn't make sense to our human logic. Such pride would immediately lead to deception. What did Jesus say? He called God his father and said the father sent him from heaven to become a man. He said he became a real man, not a spirit. He said he would die for us and then rise from the dead on the third day. He said everyone who believes these things will have eternal life. What he said is actually fairly simple. It's easy to understand. It's just not easy to explain. The facts are clear. It's the unanswered questions, the unrevealed information that frustrates us and starts us logically speculating. Something inside each of us wants to fill in the gaps to understand things God has not explained. Isn't that true? This is, the other day, I, I was, I, it was a memorial service, and I was just after the memorial service, and someone who I don't think went to the memorial service, I think they were, they were waiting to get me, uh, it came up afterwards, I do, I have this every so often, um, and he, he came up and, and began to challenge me about the nature of Jesus, and I quickly asked him, are you this particular thing, and he said, no, I'm this, and, and, and and then he, he went at it, and I'm trying to kind of excuse myself a little bit, but I am, you know me, I will, if you want an argument, I will have one. And uh, <laughs> so I'm in this dialogue, but I, but I uh, and he, he said, he said I, I said, Jesus has come to us from heaven, and he is, uh, you know, he comes from, he's from eternity. And he says, well, he's, he's was begotten, that means he had to start someplace. And, and I, this didn't even pass through my brain. It just, it's like a knee jerk, you know. Just, I just turned to him and I said, that's logic, not revelation. You don't know that. Do you hear what I'm saying? I can go there too. I, in fact, this is the thing. I have to fight myself and so do you. Filling in the gaps. The Bible simply says... The Father begot a Son. In, and it tells us, John is really clear. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And that means Jesus. Don't let anybody give you that nonsense. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, literally toward God, and the Word was God. 
Uh, he, uh, anyway, on and on. So it, when, when, when did he start? Say in the beginning. When was that? Say, I don't know. Long, long time ago. There you go. In the beginning. I, I think that beginning was, in, it was farther back than Genesis 1-1. That in the beginning came after John 1, John 1-1 in the beginning. We're, we're told that for, you know, the Lord Father created all of these things and, and knew it all before. He, he knew you before he created the worlds. It's just amazing what's in the heart and mind of God. But what we do is we step into a zone where we go, I got to stop right here. I got to stop in the beginning. And I do know the Father begot a son. Those are the things I know. Fill in the blanks, I become a heretic. Does that make sense? What does it, why does it matter? What difference would it make if Jesus had been only a prophet or a teacher? Couldn't he have died for us anyway? Or, or what if he were an angel who took on the form of a man and walked among us? If, if he had, it wouldn't be the first time an angel appeared in human form. You remember the one I refer to there? That's in Genesis 18. It says Abraham was sitting in his tent there in Hebron, and, and he looks up and three men came walking toward him. The one in the middle is a very special one. Who's the one in the middle? It, yes, it is. It's Yah, Abraham calls him Yahweh. Abraham calls him Yahweh. The other two were angels who went on down to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and, or Sodom, and tested, are there any righteous there at all? Remember that whole thing? They were, they, Abraham and Sarah fed them uh, dinner. It wasn't a kosher dinner, by the way. Milk and meat, both there, yeah. And, and I, um, when we were in Israel, was it the last time or the time before? I, don't, I think maybe the time before. Uh, we, had, uh, we had this one young man get on the bus with us, and uh, he sat up front, and he was a friend of our guide, who's, uh, our, he's a spirit-filled Russian Jew, is our guide in Mickey. And... Uh, we got in these great conversations. The guy's tremendously knowledgeable. And he and I are just going on and on talking. You know, he'd lived in the United States, gone to university here. And then he, but he, he's Jew, he was a Jew. He was not a Christian. Um, but he, a young, bright young man. And we're having these dialogues. And uh, I, I asked, let me tell you this first. I said to Mickey, I, I said to this guy, I said, you are so smart and knowledgeable. You should be a guide. He said, I am a guide. And I said, well, what are you doing on our bus? He says, Mickey invited me. And afterwards, I said to Mickey, I said, why did you invite that guy? He said, he's really cool. But why did you invite him? He says, I just wanted him to meet your people. Is that a compliment? Wow. Folks, I am so proud of that. I wanted him to meet some Christians like you guys. So he spent the day with us. In our conversation with this young man, I said to him, I asked him this question. I said, I said, we believe, we Christians believe that God has begotten a son. It, does that, from your Jewish perspective, does that make us polytheists? Is, there, is, is, that, just in, is that insane to Jewish thinking and to monotheism? That, that, that if we believe God has a son, are, do, you, do you see that? And I expected him to go, yeah. He did not. He said to us, he said, when Abraham... Um, talked and fed dinner to that man and served him a dinner, and he's the one who said, and it wasn't kosher, and, and served him a, a, a meal and called him Yahweh, as it does in the Hebrew, indisputable a couple times, calls him Yahweh. All right, he says, could our father Abraham be wrong? In other words, did he mistake who it was? And if it's Yahweh, What's he doing walking around in human form among us? Who was that? Do you see what he's saying? And I thought to myself, come on. I, I mean, this guy is saying there are mysteries here we don't understand either. 
There are, he, it, there are mysteries here we don't understand either. There are. There are. Angels took on human form, but was Jesus one of those? He was not. The answer to both questions is yes, it does matter. Because neither a good man nor an angel could save us. Let's try to understand why. Fully human, fully God. Throughout the Old Testament, God taught human beings about his mercy and his justice. We learn that he is merciful and wants to forgive people, but he is also just and will punish sin. And we watched him accomplish both purposes by the principle of substitution. Would you say the word substitution? Yeah, say it again. This is a very important concept. This, in fact, is the reason we can be saved. Substitution. God, from the very beginning, made it possible that one person's sin could be transferred to another. If it were not true, you and I would have to all die for our own sin. Say substitution again. Substitution means this. God will allow the guilt of one person's sin to be transferred to another. Since the penalty of sin is always death, when sin is transferred, the one who receives it must die. That's the painful truth God was revealing through the animal sacrifice. Human sin was symbolically transferred to an animal, and then the animal died in our place. Such sacrifices began with Adam and Eve and continued on until it became the foundation of Israel's worship in the tabernacle and the temple. If you go right back to Genesis 4, you'll see Seth, the son of, Abraham, uh, of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve apparently had done so themselves. You see him, it says, what was the phrase? Um, I wrote it down. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And what it meant was they piled up rocks or dirt into what is called a high place. High places aren't up there. High places are lifted places. Uh, we see them when we go to Israel. They, they, they would make a, an altar. And they put wood on that. And then they would take an animal and, and, and they would tie it up and put it there. And then they would, they, would, they would first lay their hands on the animal's head and confess their sins. And then they would cut its throat and then they would burn it up. And the smoke would rise before God. What, what's going on here? What's going on? Why do they lay their hands? To transfer. You see this? You transfer your sins onto this animal. Listen, animal sacrifice is ugly. It always has been ugly. I think it's supposed to be ugly. No one enjoys cutting some poor animal's throat and, and burning this up. What it says is, what's happening to this animal should have happened to me. But God in his mercy has allowed my guilt to go on this poor beast who's done nothing. And it is dying and paying my penalty. This is what should have happened to me. That began from Adam and Eve onward. And when, you, when, you come to the, when we go to Israel, one of the places we go, I just love to see, is a full-size replica of the tabernacle. It's down by a lot in the, in the desert down there in the wanderings area. Full thing. When you come in the in the in the between the curtains and all, you come into the the area. The first thing you encounter as you move toward God is the is the altar of burnt offering. You come to God first of all before you go any further with Him. Is you bring your 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 offering. You confess your sins. You, you the animal dies. There is a, there is a death and an atonement for your sin. Then you can move toward. The, the, the Holy of Holies. There's a whole progress there. This is what it's always been about. It was never that God wanted animals killed. It's always been about, I've got to teach you something. Because I'm going to send my son someday. I'm going to send the one who really will atone your sins. But I want you to start exercising faith in the, my mercy and my justice. In this way, God mercifully made a way of escape for us without ignoring the evil that had been done. God doesn't just say, oh, it's okay. He, something has to die. 
But the blood of bulls, goats, and sheep could never be the actual substitute for human sin. That Hebrews 10.4, I quote right there, says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Nobody ever thought an animal's death somehow could atone your sins. Why would a dead animal pay the moral debt owed to God by a human? The animal was never meant to be anything more than a symbol, a promise, if you will, that someday God would provide the one great sacrifice to which all the sacrifices pointed. These were symbols. They were prophetic. There will be a sacrifice given to you. I I got there, the Genesis 22. That is so beautiful. That's where Abraham took Isaac. Remember this? And, and he, he went up to Mount Moriah, and he took the wood, and he took everything but a sacrifice. And Isaac says, where's the sacrifice? And he says, the Lord will provide a sacrifice for himself. And you remember, he had, he had finally, the Lord had told him uh, to sacrifice Isaac, and he, he put Isaac on the, on the wood and the, built up the altar there and, and all of that. Um, and he had the knife in the air. And the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham, hold your hand. And Abraham, he he said, now that I've seen that you love me above all things. He he said, "Uh, don't. And it says that Abraham turned and he saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns nearby. Did you remember this? And he went and he took the ram And he then sacrificed the ram instead of his son uh, on this thing. And then he named the place something. He named it Jehovah-Jireh. For the Lord shall provide. It goes on to say, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What shall be provided in the mount of the Lord? A sacrifice. The Lord will provide his own sacrifice. You know, you've seen these shofars, these trumpets uh, in Israel. I've got one on my, uh, on my uh, desk that when anyone gives me any excuse at all, I blow, you know. You know. <laughs> uh, but mine is an antelope, you know, and that's not really the real thing. I mean, it, it, they use them, but it's not the real thing. The real thing is a, is a ram's horn. And they're, they're small. But the, the real ram's horn, when they blow that, what, it's, what, what they're doing is reminding God of what he said to Abraham in Mount Moriah, that you will provide a sacrifice for yourself. Every time the shofar is blown, they're calling on God for mercy because God has promised his own sacrifice. But what could that be? What single death could substitute for the enormous weight of sin committed by the human race? Who could bear the horror of it? Who was so worthy that their death would outweigh it? Who would love us enough to do it? Think of Gethsemane as Jesus embraced the horror of what was ahead and he went into shock, basically. Uh, When he hung on the cross... Uh, the most wonderful words in the world. Uh, just before he gave up his spirit, he said, Tetelestai is the Greek, paid in full. He declared paid in full. Once we ask those questions, the importance of the nature of Jesus becomes glaringly obvious. Death is the price for sin, but who is holy enough and good enough to be the substitute for the entire human race? Only God. Yet God can't die. So he sent his son to become a man. So he could really die. You follow this? And since our substitute must be spotless, sinless, the father subjected his son to temptation and testing. He needed to experience what we experience, but unlike every other human being who has ever lived, he must remain perfectly holy, so death could not keep him in the grave. That's what Paul says so clearly in Acts chapter 13. He goes back to that promise with David that the Holy One of God cannot be held by death. The Father 
sent his son, not just to look like a man, not to just walk among us and teach us stuff. He was becoming our substitute. He became one of us. He is to this day a human. Do you understand this? He is a resurrected human. When he, there, there is in heaven a resurrected man right now. He became one of us so that he could die. But before he died, he was tempted. He was tested more severely than any of us will ever be. He, he didn't yield to those temptations. He was savagely tempted, savagely attacked like that, and, and yet without sin, so that he could die for us. And then when he died, death could not hold him because there was no sin to hold to. So up he comes out of the grave, and by faith I die with him, by faith I rise with him. Most important truth. So do we see why the one whose death is able to substitute for the death of every other human could never be just a man? No other man is sinless and no human life is worth the accumulated weight of human guilt. Each person's death can only pay for their own sin. How much, how much can my death pay for? My sin. Did you follow that? Your death pays for your sin. You can't pay for mine. Yours just pays for yours. A man who dies can only pay for his own sin. Except he be the son of God. And the man who can truly die. But whose moral holiness and weight outweighs the all human sin. And no other man is sinless. No other human life is worth the accumulated weight of guilt. Each person's death can only pay for their own sin. And do we see why he couldn't be an angel? How could a spirit that has no flesh be tempted like a human being? How could an angel die? Why would an angel's death make any difference at all? By trying to solve mysteries that God hasn't explained, human guessing has come up with solutions that make no spiritual sense. They ignore the great principles that God has been trying to teach us for thousands of years. But the most tragic result is that they cause people to put their faith in something that can't save them. Only God's son, who became a man, who died for our sins and rose from the dead, can do that. That's why it's the most important truth of all. Let's sit in that synagogue and listen to him once more. Would you read this with me? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Amen. Would you stand with me? Do we see our Savior? Do you, do you see who, how God, God prepared for himself a sacrifice? The only sacrifice possible. In giving us free will, we, all, we have all sinned. We have all disqualified ourselves. We have ruined everything. And yet God in his mercy sent his son to bear our sin so that we could, by faith, we could repent of our sin and trust what Jesus did for us. And that God would not only transfer our sin to someone else, hang on to this, he will transfer the goodness of his son Unto us. We are covered now with Christ. Do you believe that? Yes. This, is, this is the Christian faith. Would you bow your heads just one moment? I feel prompted to do this. A anyone today, as you listen to this, you've heard me present the, really the gospel in, it, in, it, in, in, a, in a, the heart of the matter. Anyone who says, you know, I've never really confessed to Jesus or maybe I had a very inaccurate view of him or I didn't understand 
But today I do understand, and I'm putting my, my arms around that cross of his. I, I understand that God has provided his son to die for me and rise from the dead. I believe that with all my heart. I am promised eternal life, and I want to pledge that today. Anyone need to make that statement today? That's, I, just, I just want to give you the opportunity. If you need to say, yes, I am saying yes to Jesus. He is my Savior. Would you raise your hand? I'll just agree with you is all I'm going to do. Yes, yes, yes. Praise God. This is, this is the heart of the matter. I couldn't have... Yes, yes, praise the Lord. Anyone else over here? I, yes, I see your hand. Praise the Lord. This is not a game. This is, this is salvation. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Yes. Thank you, David. We, we believe. He says, if you behold, in other words, see who I am and what I've done for you. And if you believe, now that's my part, where by faith I reach out, I make a choice. Faith is a choice. It's not a feeling. You choose and you say, I, I trust you, Jesus. I believe these things about you. I, I will put my very eternity in your hands. You are my Savior, not just the Savior. You died for me. You paid my death. When you came out of the grave, you took me with you. Not just the human race. I mean, there's that personalizing of it, that laying hold of it and saying, I believe you did this for me. You are my Savior. Blessed be God. This is how we are saved. Any, anyone else? I'll, I'll stop here. But anyone else who just says, I need to confess that, Pastor, I stand in agreement with you that you're confessing. Yes, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All right, church, let's, just, let's confess him. Let's pray together. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I believe. You have prepared a sacrifice for yourself. You sent your beloved son from heaven. He became a man. He walked among us, showed us you, taught us the truth, tempted in every way like as we, yet without sin. He died for us, the righteous one, the Holy One of God died in my place, but death could not hold him, for he was pure. He was your son, and he broke free from the grave and rose up alive in, in a resurrected body. That will happen to me, because I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, you are my Savior and my Lord. I bow my knee to you. I put my hand in yours. And I trust my life to you. I want you to guide me, lead me, correct me, discipline me, train me, that I might be a disciple that follows you and serves you the rest of my life. We have just prayed in that two things. We have, we have put our faith in Christ. We have declared him and we have, we have received him, you might say, by faith to us. We have also surrendered to him and said, lead us, guide us, change us. You are the Lord now of our lives. We just got off the throne, as it were, and put Jesus there in the, in the, in the throne of our lives. When, when a person does that, you become righteous. I mean, this means the sins are gone. But God gives a gift to that person, every one of us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. I mean, he gives us Jesus. He gives us everything, but that's another discussion. But he, he, the most precious thing right now we have is the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to live inside us. So I'd like to just take it now that you've, if you've prayed that prayer, I want you to put your hand on your heart. And in effect, you're laying hands on, your, on yourself. I mean, if we could lay hands on every one of us, we, we would. We're, we are now. So put your hand on your heart, and then we're receiving the Holy Spirit. Let's pray that prayer. Dear Holy Spirit, you are my promise. You have been given to me without limit. Rivers of living water. A well springing up to eternal life. Come and dwell inside me. I am a holy temple by faith in Christ. I invite you in. In your power, your strength, your goodness, teach me, guide me, strengthen me, train me, equip me. I, will, I need you 
I can do nothing without you. But because you dwell within me, I can do all things. Everything God asks of me. Abundantly. Successfully. I can live a successful life. Full of direction and purpose. Full of fruitfulness and meaning. Because you live inside me. And you are making me like Christ. I welcome you, dear one. All your gifts. Baptize me in your power. In Jesus' name I ask it. And receive it. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.